Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Ruth Azeki on her latest novel, The Book of Form and Emptiness. Ruth Ozeki is a novelist, filmmaker, and Zen Buddhist priest. She is the award-winning author of three novels, My Year of Meats, All Over Creation, and A Tale for the Time Being, which was shortlisted for the 2013 Man Booker Prize and translated into 28 languages. She has also written a short memoir, The Face, A Time Code. She is affiliated with the Everyday Zen Foundation and lives in Northampton, Massachusetts, where she teaches creative writing at Smith College and is the Grace Jarko Ross 1933 Professor of Humanities. Her latest book is The Book of Form and Emptiness, which is what we're going to be talking about today. Ruth, welcome to Little Atoms. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. First of all, tell us how you would describe this novel. Mm, yes. Well, it's a, it's a story about um, uh, a young boy, um, Benny O, um, who loses his father uh, when he's 12 years old. And um, in the wake of that, is quite traumatized and begins to hear uh, the voices of objects in his house and in his surroundings um, speaking to him. And at first, he doesn't quite you know, he doesn't really understand exactly what they're saying, but he can kind of understand the feeling tone. And, you know, this becomes a problem because his mother, Annabelle, is a bit of a collector. Um, you know, she's a bit of a hoarder. So, you know, the, the house is quite cluttered with things. And, and so it becomes quite cacophonous there. And eventually he, you know, he, he seeks refuge at a large public library where, you know, libraries, of course, are filled with objects and filled with objects that speak right? Because of course, books do speak to us, but you know, they're orderly. They, they stand up in order on shelves and they speak in their library voices. So he finds this very um, soothing and he meets a, you know, sort of cast of characters, the denizens of the library, young artist who he falls in love with and uh, a poet philosopher who holds literary salons in the men's washroom. Um, he meets a kind of superhero librarian and, um, and then he meets um, this very special talking object, which is his book. And um, they start to have a conversation, Benny and, and the Book of Form and Emptiness. So the Book of Form and Emptiness actually is narrating the Book of Form and Emptiness in, into being. And, um, and, and it's, you know, through this relationship that Benny learns to, you know, find his own voice and to sort of listen to the things that matter. So yeah, this is why I specifically said, how would you describe this novel when I often might say, 
how would you describe this book? And to, you know, to avoid confusion, <laughs> because in this case, literally the book itself is a character in the novel. So let's talk <laughs> a bit more about this idea as of the book being one of the narrators of the story. Yeah, well, it was an idea that I don't think I started with this idea. Uh, I started just, I think, writing in a, you know, sort of third person, fairly omniscient, you know, point of view. Um, and then from time to time, though, Benny would break in, you know, and, and I would hear his kind of first person voice breaking in um, and interrupting this narration. And, and soon it became apparent to me that Benny was talking to the narrator and that the narrator, you know, was kind of talking back to Benny. Um, and, and this was really my attempt to, uh, at first, it was my attempt to, um, to write in an omniscient third person, you know, because all of my books are usually written in multiple points of view. And I had the, I had at the back of my mind that, you know, that, that real novelists, the ones who are truly deserve the, the title, right, um, should be writing in the third person omniscient, right? And, um, and so this was my attempt to do so, but it, it soon fell apart. And in fact, you know, the book ended up becoming a character and of course does have the omniscience you know, that that super omniscient capability that books do have. Um, but it can also slip into other voices as well, because books are also, you know, like that. They're they're kind of ventriloquists, right? Um, and, and so that's really how the idea, I think, sort of evolved. It, it wasn't really even an idea. It just kind of happened. And you mentioned that you know, a lot of the book takes place in a library. And obviously, I mean, with the caveat that you're a writer, I'm a books podcaster, so obviously we're a bit biased, but, you know, the book talks about, you know, the centrality of books in our lives as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, it. this story, too, is about a, you know, a young person who's helped by a book. And, and I think my last uh, novel, A Tale for the Time Being, you know, was also by about a young person, uh, you know, a girl, now Yasutani, who um, was helped by a book and also helped by, you know, the, the act of, of writing. And, and so I think this is a, a theme that connects the two novels. Um, and, you know, it's clear where this came from. You know, I was a child who loved books and, uh, you know, I was a, a child who loved writing. And, and to some extent, I think, you know, the reason that I'm here today is because of books and writing. I sort of found my way through some very difficult patches early on, uh, you know, because of books. Um, and, and so I think, uh, you know, that was the area that I was kind of exploring in these so you mentioned that, that Benny has lost his father, Kenji, at the beginning of the book. And obviously this is a, a tragic event for the family, but it's also a slightly ridiculous event in, in mm. the sort of means of Kenji's death. And I wanted to talk about why you, you chose to kill him off in such a comical way. Yeah, it was in a way I was thinking that there really isn't anything worse than losing, you know, your life or or losing a loved one in a way that is, you know, that can't be taken seriously. Um, you know, Kenji in this case, you know, he he's um he's a jazz musician. He's been um out performing and uh afterwards hanging out with his friends and and uh drinking and and you know, doing drugs or um and on the way home he falls asleep. He, he stumbles in, in an alleyway right near his house. And, you know, once he's down on the ground, he, he doesn't really see the point in getting up, you know, and he's lying there in the alleyway, kind of gazing up at the street lamp and, and you know, looking at all of the little 
tiny particles of moisture floating around in the air and um, and he falls asleep. And then, uh, you know, a, a few hours later, um, a truck comes along. And, and by then, you know, Kenny has uh, made friends with a flock of crows. And so the crows have flown down and they've covered him, you know, to kind of keep him warm and dry. And the, the truck driver, um, who is, a, you know, driving a, a, a truck filled with chickens destined for a, a slaughterhouse um, down the road, sees this, you know, this, this lump in the road covered with crows and just assumes it's a garbage bag and aims his truck at it. He hates crows and aims his, you know, his, his truck at this um, bag and um, and runs Kenji over, you know, and and Benny, whose house is, you know, really just, you know, right there overlooking the alleyway. His bedroom window is overlooking the alleyway. You know, he he sees his father, um, you know, in lying in the alleyway, and um, and sees him die, and uh, you know, and this is a, a obviously a traumatizing event, but at the same time, you know, it, it's one of these you know, events that there, there is a comedic, there was a comedic element to it as well. And I was thinking really, what, what could be worse than that? To have something, you know, so terrible and so, you know, traumatic happen, but also, you know, have this other element to it that is almost not serious. And so, as you said, Benny starts to hear the voice of inanimate objects and um, they don't, necessarily speak to him because he cannot understand their language but he hears their voices and and I wanted to talk about this idea because of course what happens in the book to Benny is you know he becomes pathologized and you know he's taken to see a psychiatrist etc because hearing voices is you know clearly a thing that happens to a lot of people that are considered unwell by you know Mm -hmm. psychiatry um so I wanted to talk about this idea of the the objects having a voice Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. yeah well I, I think I entered into this really thinking about voices and um, you know, after my own father died for about a year, uh, for about a year or so after that, from time to time, I would hear him, uh, I would hear his voice. And I'd always be doing something, you know, fairly random, like, you know, washing the dishes or folding the laundry. And, you know, behind me, usually to the, well, actually, it was always to the right hand side behind me, I would hear him clear his throat and then say my name. And I w- would whip around and look for him because it, it was so convincing that hearing this voice with my ears and I'd whip around and look for him. And of course, he wouldn't be there. And then I'd remember, oh, of course, because he's dead. Um, and every time this happened, you know, I, I feel a kind of that, that same pang of, of loss and grief. And then I just, you know, kind of ignored it. I just kept doing what I was doing and, and forgot about it quite quickly. Um, but it happened about, I happened about half a dozen times, I'd say. And then eventually it sort of faded away. And so that's what happens to Benny too. You know, I, I kind of gave him that um, early experience. And then, it, but in Benny's case, instead of his father's voice kind of fading away and nothing else happening, he does develop this kind of sensitivity so that he starts to hear the voices of objects. And I started thinking about this because, you know, in my, uh, you know, as, as a novelist, right, one of the things that I do is, you know, listen to characters speaking to me, right? This too is an unshared experience. Nobody else hears these voices, but I do, right? And I was speaking about this at a library event, and um, one of the audience members raised his hand and asked me if, 
you know, I really heard these voices, you know, when I spoke that way, did I hear the voices of characters with my ears or did I hear it? Was it more like I heard it inside with my mind, right? And so I explained the difference. I said, you know, certainly for fictional characters, it was more a, a kind of a more internal experience um, as if I was hearing them with my mind, but that I did know what he was talking about um, because I'd had this experience with my dad's voice. And um, it turns out that this man had a son who heard voices in that way as though they were external to him. And the voices were very critical and harsh. And this was a very disturbing experience to his son. And, you know, so I started thinking about that. And of course, thinking about all of the internal voices that I also have and that many writers have, you know, that are also very, very harsh. And they're in the background telling me that what I'm doing, you know, the writing that I'm doing is terrible. And, you know, I should I should just give up because nobody will be interested and I should go out and get a real job. And, you know, surely there's a better way of spending a life than sitting in front of a computer. You know, there, there's also a whole chorus of voices that talk to me like that. Um, but I was thinking how how really disturbing it would be if those voices um, were talking to me and I was hearing them with my ears as though they were, you know, as though they were outside me. And, and this really got me thinking about this idea of voice hearing as a, as a spectrum, you know, and on, on one hand, we have the, the sort of the creative side where hearing a voice of a character speaking to you or a line of poetry or, you know, a, a bar of music or, you know, having a vision, right, um, and, and painting it, you know, on one hand, this is sort of artistic inspiration and, and something that is really uh, looked at in a very, as a wonderful thing, right, as, as a kind of a... Um, you know, artistic and wonderful thing. And then there's that large area in the middle of the spectrum where um, hearing internal voices, you know, the voice of the critic and all of that is, is, you know, you can call it a kind of neurotic phenomenon, right? And then on the, you know, on the, the other edge is, you know, the voices that are deemed to be by the psychiatric profession deemed to be, you know, pathological and psychotic or, you know, schizophrenic. Those are the diagnoses that one most often receives and, um, and really, you know, seem to be a pathology, right? And, um, and, and, you know, it was interesting to me because we have such a narrow bandwidth in our culture um, for what we consider to be normal, right? And I was really thinking that, you know, what if we could expand that bandwidth and to encompass both ends of, you know, the, the entire spectrum? Because there are many people who hear voices who are not bothered by them. Um, it's only when you're, you know, when you're bothered by um, one, you know, by an external voice um, that it becomes a problem. And, you know, ironically, Sigmund Freud and, and Carl Jung, you know, the, the fathers of psychology spoke about the voices that they heard, you know, Joan of Arc heard voices, right? And Mahatma Gandhi heard voices, right? So there's, there's, you know, a lot of people who hear voices who, you know, are not bothered by them. And it's, it's just not a problem. Um, so this was, this was the kind of area that I was exploring. Um, and then the idea of object speaking, you know, that, that was, that was something else. You know, I started thinking about that because, you know, when you hold an object, not every object, but certainly many objects, you hold an object, you do have a sense that, you know, that there's a story inside it somehow, you know, that the, the object has been around for a long time. And, you know, there, there's narrative in there, if only it could speak to you. And this was something I felt very strongly when I was cleaning out 
um, my parents' house after they died. Um, you know, they, they, it was filled with objects that, that had belonged to my grandparents and especially my Japanese grandparents. And, um, and I really, you know, I remember thinking time and time again that I just wished that these objects could speak and because I knew that they had, they had wonderful tales to tell. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny, and today I'm talking to Ruth Ozeki about her book, The Book of Form and Emptiness. And Ruth, just to carry on directly from where we just broke, thinking about the voices of objects and and hearing voices of possessions, for instance. Again, this is is something that we can see on some sort of spectrum, where that's loving certain inanimate objects and investing in them some sort of personality on one hand, and at the far end, basically is getting to hoarding and not being able (laughs) to throw anything away. And I say this to bring in Annabelle, Benny's mother, who basically after Kenji's death has something of a precipitous fall into basically becomes a hoarder and and her house becomes full of objects that she both can't throw away, but also stuff that she compulsively buys. So first of all, tell us something else about who Annabelle is, and then we'll look at this side of her. Sure. Yes. Um, Annabelle, you know, is um, she works 
as a media monitor, um, you know, a news clipper, essentially. And so, you know, uh, when her office downsizes, all, you know, all of the workers are sent to work from home. And um, as, as many of us have done, right, um, during the pandemic, she suddenly finds herself at home, um, you know, with all of the equipment and the files and the papers and the, you know, all of the paraphernalia, you know, that used to be contained outside the home. Suddenly all of that stuff has, has to move inside. And, um, you know, in Annabelle's case, you know, it, that means a lot of newspapers and magazines that are flooding into her house every day that she has to scan. And, you know, she clips articles of, that are of interest to her clients, right? Um, and so she's, you know, receiving all of this paper media. And then she gets, you know, assigned other duties as well, uh, listening to radio and um, making dubs of, you know, radio shows and television shows. So, you know, her house then slowly fills up with equipment as well. And then the company has an archiving policy. So she's not allowed to throw this stuff out immediately. Um, and it starts collecting in garbage bags. And, you know, you can, you can imagine it, it's a, you know, it's kind of a nightmare. Um, but at the same time, too, Annabelle, she's a very creative person. And she sees the potential in material to become something beautiful. And I think this is something I just I love about Annabelle. You know, she's got a lot of, you know, a lot of problems, but she can't go into an art supply store without imagining, you know, all of the, you know, the paints and the, you know, the fabrics and the, all of this material stuff becoming something. And, and she sees the, the future, the possibility in, in everything. She also sees the past in things. So for example, she can't bear to throw away Kenji's flannel shirts, you know, or his clothing because, you know, she still feels, you know, some essence of, of her, her love in the fabric, you know, in the warp and weft of the fabric. Um, so she just can't bear to, you know, to, to throw things away. So of course it, it does become a problem. And it was something that I really was feeling strongly, you know, during the pandemic when all of us were suddenly contained in these spaces that felt increasingly small, you know, the longer the pandemic uh, lasted and, it, you know, the longer the lockdown lasted. Um, so, you know, I think I was kind of thinking about that and, um, and really just thinking about, you know, yes, again, just all of the associations that we have with, with our material possessions. Do we possess them or do they possess us? So as well as books having a voice, a literal voice in this novel, there are certain books that are also in other ways animate. And there is a book that basically follows Annabelle around, um, <laughs> leaps into her shopping trolley at one point, and then basically follows her around. And this is like, a, I guess, a sort of Marie Kondo-like, the book is called Tidy Magic, a sort of a Zen guide to tidy in your apartment. <laughs> Um, so yeah so I, I just want to bring in how the book is also looking at ideas of of overconsumption and and you know consumerism and and the the effect that is having on us mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah I mean I uh... You know, I, I, I debated whether or not, you know, the, the Tidy Magic book should fall within, you know, the larger book of form and emptiness. But, you know, there was there was something about, I guess, you know, I was just fascinated by the Marie Kondo, you know, phenomenon in, in the West and fascinated by the way that what Marie Kondo is, is kind of teaching is 
really basic common sense in Japanese culture. Um, you know, the, the idea that, you know, that you should treat your objects, treat your possessions, you know, with respect. So for example, you know, if, you're, if your socks have developed a hole because, you know, you've been wearing them so much, you know, you should, you know, you should hold them in your hand and, and you know, kind of feel a moment of gratitude before you throw them out. Right. And, and, you know, in Japan, indigenous Japanese religion, Shinto religion is, is really Marie Kondo's background. And um, it's a very, it's a very animistic religion um, tradition. And um, so, for example, you know, in, in Japan, back in the day when, say, for example, a sewing needle or a, a pin um, was really a precious object, you know, it was hand wrought and, you know, something that you would, you know, that you would really take care of, right? Um, eventually, it would break. And uh, instead of just throwing it out, you know, the woman would, you know, would hold on to it. And then once a year at the local shrine, they would have a memorial ceremony for broken pins and needles. And, and so then you would bring your broken needle to the shrine and on the altar would be a, a block of, of tofu, right? And you would put your you know, broken pins and needles into the block of tofu so that they would have a soft resting place, right? And then, you know, a funeral service would be held and, you know, a proper kind of memorial would be held in order to kind of send them off. And, and this was, you know, an expression of gratitude because the, you know, the object had served you and had, you know, broken during its service to you. Um, but it's also, there was an element of, of um, you know, there was a kind of safety precaution in there as well, because pins and needles are sharp and they can hurt you, right? So it, it behooves you to treat them with respect and to, you know, to give them a proper send off at the end of their lives. And, and so this was the kind of thing that, uh, I don't know, I just, there, was, there were kind of elements and cultural differences in the way that we treat our objects. And I felt like I wanted to talk about that in, um, in the book. And so thus the entry of, of the Buddhist nun icon and her book, Tidy Magic. With the, the Maria, Maria Kondo phenomenon, I also saw at the time that, you know, while obviously, obviously there is ridiculous rampant overconsumption as, you know, one of the conditions of capitalism and the, and, and the world cannot any longer support that mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. lots of ways. And so the idea of revering less stuff is clearly a good idea. At the same mm-hmm. time, particularly in the UK, over the last decade or so, there's been a sort of completely unnecessary economic austerity program mm-hmm. put upon people. And in the UK, a lot of people started, you know, becoming obsessed with sort of like, you know, wartime, make do and mend and like crap uh-huh. stuff. Which again, on the one hand, clearly in a world where, you know, the, the climate is rapidly increasing is a good idea but on the other side of course this was clearly something that was obviously only aimed at a certain percentage of the population Mm i.e that were like you know were were being financially pressed in other ways that were obviously unnecessary and again i I sort of i can remember thinking at the time that the marie Kondo phenomenon was also another sort of propaganda for hey it doesn't matter (laughs) that you've not got any money anymore you shouldn't have it You know, it's interesting because hearing you say that, of course, it, it, it kind of reminds me, it's kind of the opposite of the Martha Stewart phenomenon, right? Mm-hmm. Marie Kondo is like the anti-Martha Stewart, you know, and, and both were used, you know, for political, you know, and economic ends, which I think is actually, it's kind of an interesting slant to, you know, to, to take on it. 
you know, I was kind of just, you know, sort of playing with these ideas, but I guess, you know, in, in modern production, obsolescence, you know, of course, is designed into things, you know, things are designed to break and um, obsolescence is a, is a feature, not a bug. And, and, you know, is that really the way we want to do things? You know, it, it, it seems worth thinking about, right. And um, our means of production seems to me it's worth a review. And in what other ways? I mean, obviously, you know, the appearance of the tidy magic Zen priest in the book mm. is an indication of it. I wondered what other ways in which your own, you know, being a, a Zen Buddhist priest, your own practice has informed the writing of this novel. Mm, well, I mean, I think, you know, this novel, like the uh, A Tale for the Time Being, has a kind of overt Zen theme that runs that runs through it. And um, both novels have Zen nuns, you know, in, in them, uh, you know, who are characters in, in the story. Um, and, and so, yes, I think the, the Zen themes in this, you know, in this novel are, you know, are, are clearly present. And, you know, but at the same time, you know, we, I guess, you know, in the West, you know, Zen is looked at as something kind of abstruse and and special somehow right but but it's not really i mean zen is just you know it, it's a practice it's a it's a mindfulness practice and it it just you know it's just life right it's nothing it's nothing special you know and the the principles of zen are just kind of principles of reality you know everything is impermanent and we're all you know interconnected right we can't live independently from each other and i think you know this is these are the the themes that actually are at the heart of any piece of literature, right? That, you know, suffering exists, you know, because our attachments to things are so strong. These are, this is what, you know, it, it, this is at the heart of, I think, every novel, right? These kinds of themes. So uh, in that sense, you know, I think that in this, you know, in the case of these two books, um, certainly there, the themes are kind of, you know, identified as Zen as such, but, you know, they would be there anyway, even if they weren't. To finish it off, can I get you to read mm-hmm. So start with the voices then. When did he first hear them? When he was still little? Benny was always a small boy and slow to develop, as though his cells were reluctant to multiply and take up space in the world. It seems he pretty much stopped growing when he turned 12, the same year his father died and his mother started putting on weight. The change was subtle, but Benny seemed to shrink as Annabelle grew, as if she were metabolizing her small son's grief along with her own. Yes, that seems right. So perhaps the voices started around then too, shortly after Kenny died. It was a car accident that killed him. No, it was a truck. Kenny O was a jazz clarinetist, but his real name was Kenji, so we'll call him that. He played swing mostly, big band stuff at weddings and bar mitzvahs, and in campy downtown hipster clubs where the dudes all wore beards and pork pie hats and checkered shirts and mothy tweed jackets from the Salvation Army. He'd been playing a gig, and afterwards he went out drinking or drugging or whatever he did with his musician friends, just a little toot, but enough so that on his way home, when he stumbled and fell in the alley, he didn't see the necessity of getting up right away. He wasn't far from his house, only a few yards from the rickety gate that led to the back of his house. If he'd managed to crawl a bit further, he would have been okay, but instead he just lay there on his back in a dim pool of light cast by the street lamp above the Union Gospel Mission thrift shop dumpster. The long chill of winter had begun to lift, and a spring mist hung in the alleyway. He lay there, gazing up at the light and the tiny particles of moisture that swarmed brightly in the air. 
He was drunk or high or both. The light was beautiful. Earlier in the evening, he'd had a fight with his wife. Maybe he was feeling sorry. Maybe in his mind, he was vowing to be better. Who knows what he was doing? Maybe he fell asleep. Let's hope so. In any case, that's where he was still lying an hour or so later when the delivery truck came rattling down the alleyway. So I've been talking to Ruth Ozeki. We've been talking about the book of Form and Emptiness, which is her latest novel, and it's out now from Canongate. Ruth, thank you so much for taking the time to share it with me. Well, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.